you know, the fact that most states said never again after Rwanda and Srebrenica and, you know, this is an unfolding genocide potentially that's happened again in the last few years. I don't think it's going to be that easy. I mean, it is going to be a long sort of hard slog. And I think this is sort of a cautionary note as well. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Hi, Stephanie. I hear we're going to um, be touching one of your favourite subjects, the International Court of Justice, the ICJ. So we're doing this because how does it relate to the world of international criminal justice as well? Um, well, I think it's, you, it's an example of states really exercising new ways of trying to get uh, courts to work for them on a national political level. Uh, we've seen Iran trying to get the United States sanctions lifted uh, through the ICJ. We've seen uh, Bosnia uh, trying to get Serbs to um, not so much so much to acknowledge responsibility, but to be held responsible for genocide on Bosnian soil. And so these are all cases that uh, end up coming to the ICJ. And I do remember that I had to sit in the ICJ at one point when the Chadian example was there when Belgium was trying to get Senegal uh, to actually put Hussein Habre on trial. And that actually ended up putting some of the pressure on. And one of the reasons why we ended up with the uh, trial in Senegal itself, which we covered with Celeste earlier. So, but I think it's all about conventions and states and things. Is that right? Conventions, treaties and states. And we have Priya Pillai with us, who will hopefully explain it all to us. Hi, Priya. Hi, lovely to be here. Priya is an international lawyer, commentator and blogger uh, and editor at Opinio Juris and newly the head of the Asia Justice Coalition Secretariat. Oh, that sounds like fun. Is that what's brought you to The Hague and some other things? Is that why you're here, Priya? Well, I'm here because we've sort of organized an international conclave on the Rohingya and it leads actually right into your discussion on the ICJ because at the conclave on the 18th of October, um, the Minister of Justice for Gambia has just made the announcement that he has on the 4th of October issued instructions to his lawyers to proceed with a case at the International Court. A case at the International Court of Justice yes. on the Genocide Convention? Yes, against Myanmar. Gambia? Gambia is in Africa? Um, what? Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's a it's a bit of a longer backstory, but part of it, the main thrust for this is that the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Community States, has handed the file to the Gambia, and Gambia has taken it forward and decided that in the interests of justice, in the interests of, you know, obligations on all states and the international community, it will move ahead and approach the International Court of Justice and try to hold Myanmar accountable in, in terms of state responsibility as distinct from the International Criminal Court. So how does it work then um, under the under the Genocide Convention? Because now we're looking at convention law because there's a genocide convention that most of the countries in the world uh, apply to. And there, I think there's the obligation to act against uh, genocide or to prohibit... Uh, not to prohibit it, but to prevent it if possible. So is, is Gambia kind of acting under those? Do we know what the premise is for this? Mm -hmm. I mean, Gambia has basically taken on the mantle of saying, you know, the Genocide Convention is something that applies 
to all states. As you said, it's obligations of governors. And at this point, there still is ongoing violence and an escalation of the violence again in Myanmar. So the question of whether it's a genocide and that, that it's still ongoing is, again, something that is being brought up before the International Court. Um, in terms of the convention per se, Myanmar is a state party to the Genocide Convention and interestingly does not have a reservation to Article 9, which is the Dispute Resolution Clause, which gives jurisdiction to the ICJ. That's one of the things I always have to think about with the ICJ, even if, if states have signed up, sometimes they've said, yeah, but not in certain circumstances. That's mm-hmm. that's part of what makes it a very complicated court to, to look at. But in this case? Yes. In this case, Myanmar hasn't signed up to a reservation. So basically, the article which talks about, you know, a dispute before the ICJ under the Genocide Convention, some states have put in reservations. So in fact, Bangladesh has put in a reservation saying, you know, we wouldn't want that dispute resolution clause to apply, so we won't go to the ICJ. Myanmar, interestingly, hasn't put in a reservation. So that door is open. And that's sort of the route that's being going to be used. But I saw some legal scholars saying that, um, you know, this is dispute resolution. So you have to prove that there is a dispute. And so does that mean that Gambia now has to show, well, we sent this letter to Myanmar to stop doing this? Or, you know, um, do they, is there a dispute because Gambia says there is a dispute? Or do they have to prove more? And in what stage are we now of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a tricky question. And that's going to be something that's going to be hard to sort of get a handle on and for Gambia to make the case more clearly. And I think they've been doing that more. If you look at statements that have been coming out by the Gambian Minister of Justice, especially in the last few months, it's very clearly. And and in fact, on, on Friday on the 18th, you know, the minister talked about the obligation on all states to prevent genocide, the you know, the fact that most states said never again after Rwanda and Srebrenica and, you know, this is an unfolding genocide potentially that's happened again in the last few years. So they're making the case that this is in the nature of a dispute and that even if you're not a directly affected state, that you do have an interest and there is possibly a dispute that falls under the under the, uh, the genocide convention. I don't think it's going to be that easy. I mean, it is going to be a long sort of hard slog. And I think this is sort of a cautionary note as well, that you know, even if you look at Bosnia, Serbia, it's a case that took a lot of time. There might be issues around jurisdiction. There's the possibility that you know a dispute may not be found, but but I think this is an avenue that has to be tried as well. And the Gambia is, you know, the small country that is actually taking on the mantle and has decided to move forward. And I think possibly you know, we've heard in the press for many months that Canada has actually been one of the states that has, you know, held up this cause as well. And from what I gather as well from Friday, I mean, there are indications, there's no formal um, decision or no formal discussion as, as yet, but Canada, it looks like, will probably join Gambia as well, I sense. Yes, and I know from the Dutch uh, parliament that they've adopted a law uh in Parliament, or they adopted a motion that uh, urged the Dutch government to look at joining up forces with other states to file such a case at the ICJ. And actually, when the Gambia first came out with that they want to launch this case at the ICJ, I called the Dutch Foreign Ministry to say, "Are you going to join this?" But you know, the ministries and legal things in the ICJ are so complicated that they're still trying to call me back on that one. Is this some? Um an example of how we see the ICJ changing 
over the, the last few years? I mean, certainly it just it seems for us as journalists covering that there's a lot more going on there than there used to be. Or, or are we making this up? No, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I, I, I'm quite an avid ICJ watcher. I mean, I watch the ICC, but to be honest, I watch the ICJ a lot more. And I do think, you know, it's all relative when you speak about activist courts. So the ICJ really is not, you know, a site of great activism. I'll say that clearly. But there definitely seems to be a change or an evolution in not just the type of cases that are coming to the court, but also maybe the court's approach. So I think an indication is also with the provisional measures. I mean, a lot of political... Can you explain what provisional measures are to somebody who's not an avid ICJ watcher (laughs) like you? Of course. Um, Provisional measures are basically, in a way, a first step. So, you know, if, for instance, if there's a dispute or there's a problem between two states, a state may file an application at the ICJ and with that application will will quickly file what's called a request for provisional measures, which is basically to say, look, there's a problem and we need somebody to basically uh, put in an injunction, you know, make sure that the status quo is held. And that's sort of the, the idea of a provisional measure. So in fact, you know, sort of bringing it back a bit to the Myanmar Gambia case, one of the positives is that if Gambia, when the Gambia does go ahead with the case, one of the first things that it, it probably it will ask for invariably is an order of provisional measures, which yeah. might be, you know, forthcoming very soon as well. So. And, and typically these provisional measures are always something that uh, keeps the status quo or keeps the dispute from getting worse. And now the question is always, do states actually listen to this? But um that's the that's the main thing you ask for. Don't and nobody does something that makes this worse. So in the case of Myanmar, it yeah. would probably be please stop um, uh, threatening Rohingya so that they leave. And are there other examples of where we see provision states using this uh, uh, this provision of provisional measures, whatever you call it? <laughs> no, plenty. I mean, I think one of the ones that comes to mind, of course, is the Iran US JCPOA. So I think this was last October. October, um, the 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 International Court of Justice has issued an order of provisional measures limited to you know medical services, medical equipment, as well as, well as civil aviation, saying you know y'all might have a dispute regarding your 1955 Treaty of Amity and you know between yes, the a, United States and, and Iran. Iran. Sorry, you yeah, said. this is a story of where uh, Iran, um, when the United States imposed new sanctions on Iran after they uh, stepped out of the nuclear deal, they imposed new sanctions and Iran said, but wait a minute, we have a 1950s friendship treaty and you're not supposed to do this. And the court um, looked at these and they asked for provisional measures to lift all these sanctions. And the court said, well, we can't, um, not all of these uh, potentially fall under what we can uh, decide on, but uh, medical medical services, um, things that really target the civilian population and things that target aviation, that does fall under the remit of this friendship treaty, possibly if we go and look at it at a later date. So please don't do anything that makes that worse. And has the US complied? I'm not sure about compliance. And well, unfortunately, there are cases where the US has not complied, including in death penalty cases. So, you know, they've gone ahead and executed people. So that's, I guess, one of the weaknesses of the international legal system in terms of enforcement and implementation. But I think there's a certain legal and moral authority as well to have an order. 
This is always the standard paragraph that's in any uh, kind of news agency copy about this is that the ICJ, while its findings are final and binding, they have no way to enforce rulings. And the only thing that it does is uh, yeah, give it the kind of moral authority uh, to make other states stop. But they're they're I wouldn't say they're routinely ignored, but they're very much. Um, yeah, and I'm not sure if ignored is the right word, but they, they're not followed quite to the letter that the court would want to. It's not such a big impediment to states to have a ruling of the ICJ. Though I would say, you know, a recent case, the Jadav case between Pakistan and India, in that case, the provisional measures order that came out was complied with by Pakistan. I mean, because. What was that case about? So that case was about uh, an alleged uh, spy, Indian spy. The allegation was that he crossed over the border into Pakistan and, well, the Indian allegation is that he was abducted by Pakistan from Iran and that he was conducting espionage in a restive region of Pakistan called Balochistan. And so he was caught, he was tried by a military court and he was sentenced to death. And India applied for provisional measures, you know, applied to the court. And he was scheduled to be executed, not, you know, it, it, it was a process that would have occurred fairly soon. And Pakistan didn't go ahead with that, and you know, so they waited through the through the case. So there are there are measures of compliance as well. Yeah, I think you see that states get this kind of ruling, and then they try to do the minimum amount possible to yeah. comply with it, so that they don't look completely like a rogue state, yeah. but they try to get away with as much as possible. Yeah. And are there other cases of provisional measures we should be looking to in the in the future? What else is coming up? Yeah, actually, there's one very interesting case, which, you know, has has been a very unusual case where you've had two sets of provisional measures. So let me backtrack. Maybe it's basically the case of Qatar versus the UAE and this United relates, Arab Emirates, United Arab Emirates. And it relates to a blockade, which, you know, has has been a dispute that's sort of been brewing for some time. But to bring it back really to the provisional measures, Qatar applied to the international court saying, you know, we need some provisional measures. We need basically an injunction on on certain aspects. And that was granted by a sort of narrow vote, eight votes to seven. And then what happened was the UAE turned around and also asked for provisional measures, which is quite unusual, basically saying, look, we have also proceedings that are ongoing now under a human rights committee. So a treaty body, which is under the UN remit. And, you know, given that we've got these proceedings, which are related to the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, you're basically duplicating proceedings. And so, you know, we shouldn't have a, a, an ongoing proceeding at the International Court of Justice. And please ask Qatar to withdraw from the ICJ and withdraw its case. So it, it's a, it's been a very interesting and unusual case of two sets of provisional measures. It sounds very much like a lawyer lawyer's case <laughs> enjoying discussing lawyerly things. Um, it is a bit, yeah. Okay. But just to get back to the, the way this yeah. works is, uh, um, of course, um, why uh, Qatar and the United Arab Emirates can be at the ICJ is because they both signed this UN Convention Against Discrimination. And so the argument of um, is that you have to fully do everything in that dispute within the convention before you can move to the ICJ, before you can really say um, this wasn't resolved in the normal mechanism that was there for the convention, so you have to go to the ICJ. So this is a very uh, something that we see in a lot of ICJ cases where there's a lot of discussion always in 
have we done everything that we should do according to the treaty before they can go to the ICJ? Because the states who yeah. are um, uh, the complaint is against will always argue that all the other conflict resolution mechanisms haven't been dealt with. It really does make this court, um, in a very real sense, this court of last resort, doesn't it? It's kind of the last, the highest, yeah. the top thing. Once you end up there and once you've discussed absolutely everything else, yeah. this is the one that's meant to make the big decisions. It is. But I think what the Qatar UAE case also indicates is I think the growing influence of other dispute resolution mechanisms. So, for instance, the um, Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination has, for the first time, looked at what is called an interstate complaint or an interstate sort of dispute. Usually what happens with these UN treaty bodies is you have an individual complaint. So a person is aggrieved, you know, can approach the treaty body and you look at what relief you can give the person, the individual. In this case, for a change, the remit, which is usually the remit of the ICJ, which is states approaching it, are now in front of a UN treaty body. And I think the other sort of very interesting aspect of this, and not to get too technical, is at the ICJ currently, the state of proceedings are one set of provisional measures has been granted, one set of provisional measures has been denied, and now the court is deliberating and, and sort of looking at the next steps in terms of jurisdiction, you know, how it addresses some of these questions. In the meantime, the um, Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination has come out with a decision on the 30th of August of this year, after the ICJ, basically saying, we actually have a way that we interpret this clause in terms of dispute resolution, and here's our interpretation. And so they've, they've put it out there. So it's going to be very interesting to see now how the ICJ approaches this question of, of not primacy, but how they interpret this article in terms of you know a dispute and and who who needs to sort of go first and is it alternative is it cumulative how do you interpret this so it's a it's a very interesting relationship i think between these two bodies as well so we have to see how it goes can we just also describe who is the icj in that sense i mean i i um i know that what it started off with was a previous version before this version of the ICJ uh, and it's after the Second World War and so you've almost always had the five permanent members of the Security Council have always you know, been judges there and then you have a range of, of other people. They, the judges are the ICJ? Mm -hmm. The judges. At, so you have 15 judges at the ICJ that are elected for a nine-year term. And, you know, at this point, you have three women as well who are judges on the bench, including the vice president. Um, the, the ICJ, I think the composition of the, of the bench is quite varied right now. I mean, you've got judges from, the president is from Somalia, the vice president is from China, you have a judge from Brazil, from India, Russia, Slovakia, I think. Um, not the UK for a change after many, many years. Australia as well. So it's it's quite a varied co composition, you know, across different legal jurisdictions as well. And that's what makes it very interesting in terms of the approach. And yeah. It used to be when I remember going to the ICJ in the early 2000s, I remember lots of cases about uh, borders, whether a rock is really an island or not, whether um, this, uh, whether the water 
how dry it was on ebb and floods because it means that if it's dry for a certain amount of time it's actually an island and that that then influences the territorial waters around it which means you could drill for oil in bigger parts and that was like the mainstay of these cases and now there are a lot more um, in my mind uh, things based on treaties and also things that are no longer so much related to borders so do you see a shift in the kind of cases that are being brought as well Possibly. I mean, I think there still are a fair number of border delimitation cases. I mean, you've got some of the cases that used to come to the ICJ now go to the ITLOS or, you know, the Tribunal and the Law of the Seas. So a lot of the maritime jurisdiction and border cases sort of have moved out. But a lot are still jurisdiction, maritime, you know, territorial borders. But I think increasingly now there are cases which are linked to, so for instance, uh financing of terrorism on the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, on, you know, a, a range of different issues as well. But of course, at the end of the day with the ICJ, invariably it is between states, unless, of course, you have what's called an advisory opinion, which is, you know, when the court is asked to reflect on a particular issue. And we've actually had a very interesting advisory opinion come out just recently, which is on the Chagos Islands. And I think that's Again, in terms of this post-colonial court or, you know, how the court is approaching questions, it's quite a strong judgment talking about decolonization. So, what, what was the judgment there? So the judgment basically was that the UK has not complied with its obligations to decolonize and that, you know, the uh, Chagos and the Chagossians. So again, in terms of the human rights aspect, it's not just now very state focused. You're also looking at individuals within the context of these state disputes and that they've had their rights violated by the fact that the UK hasn't decolonized completely. And this is for the people who don't know the story of the Chagos Islands. This is a group of islands uh, close to, uh, which belonged to Mauritius, but which was a UK uh, colony. And then they were about to be decolonized in the 1960s. And the UK basically told them, that's fine, but we want those Chagos Islands because they we want to put, um, or the, um, the US wanted to put a military base on there. And it's uh, strategically really important. So the Chagos Island um, is now... Uh, a main U.S. Uh, strategical military base of Diego Garcia, which is used to um, supply um, planes going into Afghanistan in the Middle East and all that. Um, to maintain this, uh, to get this uh, military base there, they moved all the Chagossian and moved them to the, either the Seychelles or Mauritius and basically moved everybody out and they couldn't move back. And um, the dispute is now the Chagossians um, want compensation and they want to return to their islands and file the case it, they went through the UK courts and were dismissed and uh, finally went to the UN General Assembly because the UN General Assembly can ask for an advisory opinion of the ICJ and this is what happened enough states voted to have that and they asked for an advisory opinion and in, in essence the advisory opinion was UK you did this wrong you could not decolonize by forcing people Basically saying, you can have your independence if we get the islands. That's not um, a negotiation, which the UK was saying, we negotiated yeah. this and they agreed, so it's fine. And the court said, no, you know, you don't. This is negotiating with a, with a gun to your head. Basically, we don't accept that. And they have to decolonize as quickly as possible. It makes it sound like the court is very um, hip, modern and with the times. <laughs> yes, I think so. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think it is. It has definitely issued a lot of sort of recent decisions which are pretty strong and are, you know, really with the times. I'd say 
you know, this is also long overdue, given that the whole question of decolonization around Chagos was many years ago, as Stephanie said, in the 60s. So I, I think it was also a novel approach in terms of saying, you know, we will go ahead and ask for an advisory opinion, get the get the votes needed in the General Assembly to push for an advisory opinion. And I think that was a huge diplomatic effort as well on the part of Mauritius to, you know, to manage to get all many states on board enough at least to ask for an ICG advisory opinion. So very, very interesting sort of legal strategy as well and very forward thinking, I think, also. And you've seen this this strategy before. Um, many years ago, there was this advisory opinion on the Israeli wall built and uh, Palestine had managed to get enough support in the General Assembly to have somebody look at that. Uh, and this comes from the lobbying in the General Assembly because these are things that would never go yeah. uh, by the Security Council because they have all the important states veto it. Exactly. And so states like Palestine, like uh, Mauritius, who don't really have a lot of clout to get those things to the Security Council are now kind of using the uh, General Assembly to get yeah. to the ICJ. Yeah. yeah. And I think maybe just sort of a point which is, you know, I, I come to this from a legal perspective, but I think I'm always really sort of careful and and I think it's important to realize that everything is within a political context as well. You know, so you're using legal tools and strategies to achieve certain political aims or goals. And, and the ICJ is a very powerful, albeit very sort of um, hard path to traverse as well. I mean, it is a long process in terms of, you know, putting a case forward if you're doing an advisory opinion to get the vote. So so there are lots of steps along the way. And, and I, th I don't think it's something that states take lightly before they embark on, you know, a, a, an application at the ICJ. But I think it's increasingly being used more and more these days. Is it expensive to um, to uh, approach the ICJ? Because you need to have a lot of big legal team to make yes. it work. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually don't often know the numbers and, and this is a very good question and I'm going to find out a bit more. But I, I, I would imagine that, you know, just the legal costs of really fairly large legal teams that are hired by governments that have the expertise as well on the international law issues. I mean, I... I it, it does take a lot, I think, to get a case to the ICJ. And and I think we also should mention that um, we also think that the ICC takes a long time because they go to uh, take six years for a trial to end. The ICJ, uh, they have cases of 10, 15 years occasionally. So this is not only do you have to have a top legal team and pay them a lot, you have to pay them a lot for a very long time yeah. until these things are, are actually resolved. So does that mean that essentially... Um, some states who really don't have that kind of long-term ability to put that amount of resource in might do less well at the ICJ than some others? Quite possibly. I mean, I mean, you would hope that, you know, when a, when a country or a state does make the decision to go forward and, and approach the ICJ, that they have the resources, including the personnel or the, you know, the financial resources to, to take that step. And that's part of the calculus in terms of whether to go down that route or not. Because, I mean, the stakes are also pretty high. While you are applying, you know, for uh, either provisional measures and, you know, looking again at the case of Myanmar and the Gambia, failure is, is really, in a way, for many of these cases, not an option. I mean, it is not something that you want to go down this path and end up with a case that is not in your favor. So 
it's part of the calculus, I think, that has to be taken in. And we see that these cases get a lot more politicized at the ICJ. Uh, we had a Russia-Ukraine case at the ICJ where there was a lot of protesters as well. Um, we had Bolivia versus Chile where people like, traveled down from uh, Paris, these Bolivians that I met to see this case because it's, you know, this is important. We're fighting for our nation. And I imagine you must have heard the same thing. Didn't you record sometime um, the stuff at India-Pakistan? And yeah, they, our, our Poor intern had to uh, try and stick, uh, try and get the sound of uh, of people there. That that must have been a very vibrant case. That was a very vibrant case. That was there was a lot of lot of interest in that, and that was just media. But some of these cases, they also have people. If they have uh, like a diaspora living yeah. in Europe, they they all come down on a bus yeah. to look at this. So it's it it's being used much more in kind of national political narrative. And so my question: Why do you think that they they choose the ICJ to go to? Why is the ICJ now suddenly a thing that you do if you want to show your kind of your fighting for your country's pride. Yeah, I mean, that's a very interesting observation. And and I think, Stephanie, you and I were on part of a similar panel on a, on a news channel in India. And, you know, at some level, there's, I feel sort of quite uncomfortable as well with the hyper-nationalism around some of these cases on the part of, you know, invariably both parties. So for instance, in the Jadav case, I mean, I think it's not an exaggeration to say there was a fair amount of hysteria, press hysteria on both sides of the border. And honestly, without a really nuanced understanding of what was going to happen as a consequence of the decision. You know, I mean, it, and, and I think this is the one thing that I had sort of wanted to caution a lot of people, which is it's not a panacea. It's not an instant solution. I was going to say it's not a football match where exactly. you end up with, you know, one side winning more goals than the other. Exactly. It's, you you would say it has a, a lot more levels and technicalities exactly. that people need to understand. Exactly. But maybe I'm just suspicious, but is it not maybe the case that because the ICJ is so little known and there are so few people who are experts on it, those national governments choose that as well because they can control the narrative much better because nobody knows what's going on, really. That's true. That's definitely a part of it, I think, in terms of the distance and, you know, but I think there's a lot of power in saying it's the world court. And I think that's sort of the way it's, it's, um, that's what, what is used. That's the phrase that's used. And everybody says, well, you know, it's the ultimate court without really understanding what goes into it and, and what, what are the factors that go into decision making as well so okay so what's going to happen at the world court in the next uh, 10 years the world cup of courts you know of well, course it's not but yeah, yeah um what do you expect uh, to be seeing more of i i think it's just it seems at least again my impression to be just getting a lot more cases i mean i think as of now there's one case being heard and there's 16 cases that are pending so it's got a massive docket at this point and it's got a lot of work ahead of it and you know i i, I think it's if you look at the timelines and you look at the recent decisions it's not doing too badly i mean it's it's managing to get through its docket quite well and given the scale of proceedings, given the length, given the multiple, multiple levels, levels within the proceedings, right? So you have applications, provisional measures, jurisdiction, merits, preliminary objections before all that. So there are many, many levels to these cases. But the courts, I think, doing quite well, I would say, in terms of addressing some of these issues. But let's, let's see how it goes. I mean, I think, I think there'll be more interesting cases coming up. 
So, uh, Priya, we always ask um, three questions of our guests and we don't uh, tell them what they are in advance. So um, you're a commentator on international law, uh, get interviewed a lot. What do people always get wrong about your job? Oh, my goodness. Okay, that's a, that's a complicated question. They get a lot wrong. I mean, a lot. Um, is the ICC the same as the ICJ? Um, you know, I've worked at a previous international tribunal for Yugoslavia, so a lot of confusion about what that court did, whether it's the same as the ICC. So invariably, I have to sort of distill some of those strands a bit. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a complicated question as well. And our other question is always, what should we have asked you that we didn't? <laughs> I think we covered quite a lot. I, I, y'all are, you know, professional journalists. I think y'all have managed to cover it all pretty much. I think we could go on for another hour probably on the ICJ. But yeah, I think you've asked the right questions, to be honest. Okay, well, we'll ask our audience to uh, to let us know if there's anything that we should have asked you. We'll get you back on if we need to on that. Um, and our last question is, have you been reading anything recently, watching anything recently that you think might be interesting for other people as well? Anything you might like to recommend? Um, I did read an incredible book, which has stayed with me. I mean, I read it many months ago, but it stayed with me really for a long time. And it's called uh, Human Acts by Han Kang. She's a Korean author, and she's written this book about the Gwangju uprising in the 1980s in Korea during the military dictatorship. And it's written from the perspective of, you know, five or six people. And it really I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. It's one of the most incredible books I've read recently. So I would highly recommend that. Thanks very much, Priya. I just want to put in a... Um um, a marker now that I want to get you back on to talk about what is changing in Asia and the um, how people see international law, international Absolutely. justice. And you're based in the Philippines now. So what do you think, Stephanie? I want to know all about what's going on with the ICC in the Philippines um, in the next, uh, next episode. So we definitely want to have you back. Uh, I'd love to be back. Absolutely. So come back to The Hague soon. I will. I'll be here in December. Okay. Great. <laughs> This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Show notes and additional blogs are available on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service. So please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.